This is Lend Me Your Ear. Conversations worth hearing. With Liam Halligan. Welcome to Lend Me Your Ear. In this episode, I meet Elizabeth Shimfossil, a sociologist at the UK's Aston University, who's written Rich Russians, from oligarchs to bourgeois, an eye-catching study of the new Russian business elite that's emerged since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Originally from Austria, Shimfossil enticed dozens of so-called oligarchs and minigarchs to discuss their personal stories, how they acquired wealth, their views on Western culture, and the future of East-West relations during what some now call a new Cold War. Shinfossil's book benefits from this long parade of interviews, says Foreign Affairs magazine, which puts a human face on her analysis. And her analysis is one of Robert Barron's becoming gentleman, of a rush to be seen as refined and bourgeois, of the man's world that's post-Soviet Russia, but also of powerful, unstoppable Russian women. I started by asking Elizabeth Shinfossil about the role her own father played in persuading her to write this book, a story she shares with her readers. His role was quite important. I was searching for a PhD project, was still at the University of Vienna, and I had this idea about looking into wealthy Russians and see whether they have already um, acquired any strategies to pass on their newly acquired status and privileges to their children. And I wrote that down and showed it a number of professors, potential supervisors, I was hoping, and they all said um, it's a stupid idea. Too niche. Too early, the upper class doesn't yet exist, it's all still far too in a process of transformation and flux, and plus, uh, most importantly, none of them would ever possibly talk to me. Um, So I was about to give up, but I showed the proposal to my father, I sent it to him, And he was about to leave uh, for an expedition to the Himalayas to climb, try it for the second time, to climb Annapurna 3, um, which is 7,500 meters above the sea. And he was preparing for the the journey last uh, day before he left, and I called him and said, don't worry, Papa, we can talk about it when when you return. He has always been very chaotic, so he was kind of in hectic packing his stuff. But he insisted... um, talking about my proposal and he said and was he positive he was he was totally excited he he was a historian and he looked at it from a perspective of history repeating itself robber barons turning into gentlemen uh, like in the states with the rockefellers and the carnegie melons and so on in the late um, 19th century and uh, also a new class trying to acquire legitimacy and, and stabilise itself through the process. And he laughed and insisted uh, that I should um, pursue that project. And he then left and never came back. He died of high-altitude sickness on 6,500 metres above, above sea level, which was probably one reason why I decided to pursue it, but his role in the whole thing, had he not replied to it very positively and uh, shown his enthusiasm, I would probably never have followed it up. Absolutely astonishing and quite moving, actually. Thank you for for sharing that with us, uh, Elizabeth. So the academics said the rich Russians would never speak to you. They clearly underestimated your determination. How many people have you spoken to and how many people's interviews have you reflected in this in this book 
Well, the academics had a point. It wasn't... <laughs> it wasn't easy. They didn't queue up to give me These, the these are oligarchs. They, they, they don't normally talk about themselves, certainly not on the record. Yes. Not all of them were oligarchs. Some were just kind of... I called them the poor rich. So the minigarchs. The minigarchs. Uh, in total, um, I interviewed 80 people, rich Russians, but over a period of 10 years. So. But the administration involved and the... The sheer effort of doing this. It took me a long time. But for the second project where I... <laughs> you look too I, young to have been through all this. <laughs> for the second project where I um, interviewed exclusively Forbes-listed people, I was also searching for a new academic job and realised that landing a job interview on the academic job market is more difficult than landing an interview with a billionaire. <laughs> well, you've clearly pursued this inspired by your your late father and we pay tribute to him and I'm glad you have because I obviously have a huge interest in Russia having lived there myself over the years having been a journalist there uh, and also helped to run businesses there Uh, and I I must say this is the first book I've ever read that really captures the upper echelons of post-Soviet modern Russian society what made you so interested in Russia you're from Austria and you spend a lot of your time living in the UK. Why Russia? That started a long time ago. Russia was long before any interest in the rich. I was 18, didn't know what to study, first thought about Chinese, then decided it's too difficult. But I also was always interested in history, and Russian history is just anything other than boring. So that was one additional reason. And so and you studied Russian? I studied and... Russian and history, and then a typical Austrian-German thing, I... Uh, finished with a master's degree, started working full-time in governmental development corporation and was frightened of the idea not to be a student anymore. So I did another bachelor's and master's, this time in sociology, and this interest to look into social classes, social structures, how they reproduce themselves, a typical sociological topic I tried to combine with my Russian studies. One of your chapters is the quest for legitimacy and superiority. Another is becoming bourgeois. Your thesis is that a lot of wealthy Russians who who might have got some money in the death throes of the Soviet Union when there was a sort of an asset grab, they're now trying to legitimise their wealth and become more respectable. Yes, completely. They've been doing that for years. First of all, what they do is to become big philanthropists, also been done by, for example, all the Carnegies and uh, Rockefellers. When it comes to becoming bourgeois, also a lot of shaking of these typical characteristics that makes them look like parvenus and nouveau riches, so all the kind of extreme conspicuous consumption, uh, showing off your wealth. The big um, yachts. Yes, they might still have the yachts, but in parallel to the yachts, they will also have maybe an art collection, maybe a big charity and many other things that they put more into the foreground. And a lot of wealthy Russians surround themselves with artists and cultural figures, don't they? That is very important to them. One one aspect that become apparent is that many of my interviews were born into the Russian intelligentsia, which Russians today were much less stories of rags to riches than in many ways quite privileged usually young men who uh, made the best of the chances that opened up in the 1990s after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union to make big money uh, very quickly. But many of them were born into the intelligentsia and now in the process of becoming bourgeois, that's something they very consciously emphasise. 
But actually, some of the rags-to-riches stories aren't really rags-to-riches stories because they come from families that were very prominent in the Soviet Union and sometimes quite privileged within the Soviet Union. Some are. The large majority are not necessarily very famous, big, powerful families or dynasties, but it's this typical social strata, this intelligentsia strata, highly educated, who sent their children into the best educational institutions, who have in many ways a privileged lifestyles in uh, their um, academic uh, surrounding. Academics, especially scientists, had all kinds of privileges um, in, in Soviet times. The biggest privilege for the children uh, clearly was that they had received from a very young age all kinds of cultural resources and also, of course, social networks through their universities, they went to and so on. They could then employ when it came to um, the, the money-making in the 1990s. Um, Fifteen years ago, they stressed more that they kind of an image uh, myth of being rags-to-riches, and today they're very concerned about uh, many kind of tell, telling me very, very early in interviews how big the library was they had in their house, how sophisticated, uh, sophisticatedly arranged the books were, uh, that their father was a professor, that the mother uh, took them to, the, to a classical concert or to an exhibition every, every Sunday and so on. So it's the kind of a cultivation of a very different image to the one of conspicuous consumptions consumption they used to immerse in very publicly. Tell us about the interviews that really stick in your mind. Give us some examples of some some of the interesting rich Russians that people can read about in in your book. There was one that stuck in my mind because it made me sweat a lot. It was with David Jakobashvili, an entrepreneur. A Georgian name. Georgian background, yeah. And I got in touch with him. It was a bit odd. I got his private mobile phone number and gave him a cold call. He was actually quite friendly on the phone and then we met on a very hot summer day and he was clearly in a very bad mood and and that's kind of uh, quite typical. His way of showing his power in the social action was to refuse answering any question. He would just say, oh, I've never thought about it and go silent again. I don't know. Um, I've never, I don't think I can, he just kind of refused to reply and I was struggling quite badly and decided later that it's a character thing and people say, oh no, he's so nice, he's a lovely person. I met him later on and I did realise he's really, he is indeed a lovely person and even someone rather rarely a Russian with a great sense of humour, so meanwhile uh, I've changed my impression of him quite, quite, quite a lot but Back then, that was rather unpleasant for me, but I've experienced time and again, So, and it's also not, not untypical. While they have acquired all kind of nice manners and tastes and all kind of bourgeois features in how they live their life and, and show themselves, it doesn't go so far that they have acquired a uh, more ease in social interaction uh, and, and a certain felt obligation to... Uh, communicates very easily with whoever they meet without showing their superiority. So, so if they if they're grumpy, they they're grumpy. The richer they are, the more they will show their foibles. We both know hundreds, thousands of of Russian people. Of course, we know many can be fabulous raconteurs, astonishingly amusing. But even the same people. 
they will use silence and they don't feel an obligation sometimes to, to respond at length to keep the conversation going, right? Yes. <laughs> There's you showing your inner Russian. Yes. <laughs> Did you meet any... Well, like, like the Austrians, we're also a little bit socially handicapped. <laughs> Germans are kind of the same. <laughs> Did you meet anybody that scared you? Okay, park that. Did you meet anybody who you liked more than you thought you would? Yes. I th- yes, quite a few. And often it was not uh, on the first sight, but after warming up and um, communicating for a good time. And that can also be quite otherwise unpleasant people, like, for example, Dmitry Kisilyov, who is famous in the West for statements like, Russia is the only country able to turn the U.S. into nuclear dust or that um, homosexuals shouldn't be allowed to donate their organs, um, they should be burned instead, and so on. And he said at the beginning he's got half an hour and three and a half hours we were still sitting there. And we got along quite swimmingly up to the point when I asked a question about um, the origins of his dislike towards homosexuals. Then it went downhill a little. But after the point we had a very... Very nice, uh, good number of hours. Were you talking to most people in, in Russian? Yes. So they yes. Admi- must have admired that uh, non-Russian from the Western world speaking to them well in their own language. Did you find that was a big advantage? They would rather say, oh, you don't understand that, you don't understand this kind of fine details, uh, so I might not bother explaining that to you. So they would they rather come from the other perspective. Oh, of, they could use it as a mask. Mm, I think I felt they, they found the conversation easy enough that they would then rather pick me on my weaknesses than um, congratulate me to my Russian. <laughs> um, but some of them wanted to speak English. It was sometimes a little bit a battle at the beginning in the, of the interview, but I insisted on, on speaking Russian. It's their mother tongue. There's absolutely no point in two people conversing using in, in a foreign language if, if one of them can speak in their mother tongue especially if it's the person whose uh, Being story, yeah. stories are, are in the in the centre of attention Good for you Have you kept in touch with a lot of the people that you've interviewed? Have you made some new friends? Were you offered any jobs? No, nothing <laughs> I did get a few gifts um, for example from Magomedov who is now in jail he gave me a big very happy heavy book uh, on Bolshoi Theatre which he helped renovate <laughs> sometimes people think that the, the gifts might have been uh, bigger, <laughs> sadly, or I mean, it would have been a little bit unethical. Friends, some of the young ones, yes, a little, uh, yeah. One of your chapters is um, A Man's World. Were all the rich Russians you interviewed men, or were there women too? There were women, but far fewer than I wanted to interview. I thought it would be the easiest and the most logical to uh, find a lot of ladies of leisure. But it turned out that all the networks through which I tried to get interviews were linked to those who are most active in society, and that in a patriarchal society in Russia is mostly men. And there was a strange moment when I asked many of them whether I could also talk to their wives, and they arrange such interviews exclusively in cases where the wife uh, plays a, an important role in their own right. When the wife either has runs a, her own company successfully or a big charity or things like that. So I never ever was handed on to a cliché lady of leisure. But we know from our own experiences of living in Russia 
that in Russian society, women do play a prominent role. Russia's central bank is run by a woman. There are many women who are very high up in the civil service, companies. I mean, what's it like being a woman in Russia today as unusually a Western woman who has really marinated herself in Russian culture the way you have? And I also have a number of very impressive women among my interviewees. Once they are powerful, they are unstoppable in many ways. How they get there is slightly different to their Western counterparts, I would say. It's not expecting to be treated like an equal, but using your female powers to advance and often quite uh, forcefully. Having spoken to lots of powerful men, Elizabeth, what do you think the future is for women in Russia? Do you think they're going to become more feminist in their outlook? Or do you think a lot of them will stay as they currently are, even very well-educated Russian women, of having quite a traditional view of family structures and women's role in society? I think there might be quite a difference between different strata in society. It is a global phenomenon that the higher you get in society, especially in the top strata, that patriarchal structures and conservatism play into the hand of women. It's often women who consciously try to preserve them. Uh, example of, of Germany and jo- Germans, um, top business elite, um, a man has to have a stable family in uh, his background. To be seen as credible and responsible and stable. Yes, Uh, which of course is is to the benefit of his wife because the wife has less risk of being divorced and replaced by a um, much younger woman along the way. So there are a lot of kind of, also in history, a lot of moments where exactly very traditional set roles are well in the interest of, of upper-class women. Doing your thing, in, maybe in some charity running that, um, looking after the upbringing of the children, some cultural elements of, of family life, and also making yourself not so easily replaceable through all those things. Let's talk about Russia and the West. Clearly, you're a Westerner, albeit a Westerner, speaking good Russian and making a huge effort to understand Russia But what were the general feelings you felt and heard from your many, many interviewees towards the West? Most of them are certainly quite cosmopolitan and interested in good relations between Russia and the West, but there was a strong minority that repeats the hostility we hear from the Kremlin Russian media that Russia needs to look after its, itself, that it's a different civilization, that it should keep away from all these liberal values. So there's a certain kind of hostility in, in a good part of them. What is a feature of more liberal, cosmopolitan ones is nevertheless a certain, I call it superiority complex, a certain quest to be accepted by the West and a defiance that the West doesn't seem to quite respond to that in the way uh, they expected that. So the idea of um, being Russian, Russian culture in general, being the best civilization, most sophisticated, best uh, literature and so on, and people who consider themselves very cultured and well-read, then encountering Western arrogance has led to a certain kind of mutual suspicion. Obviously, the global elite, they read the Financial Times and The Economist, which are generally quite negative about Russia, it must be said. Did you ever sense any antipathy 
towards uh, the Western media and how the Western media covers Russia? Completely, and that is something that, that goes throughout. And I would say it's also legitimate, of course, in many ways, because a lot of Western uh, narratives are quite clumsily stuck in uh, Cold War thinking. They look, usually look at Russia from a perspective of looking at the Kremlin, their politics, not considering many other aspects of, of Russian culture. One thing I remember teaching at a UK university history students uh, second year and... So the main 19, 20-year-olds, right? Yes. It was a, a course on Russian history, but uh, general history students. And when uh, the question came up who won the Second World War, the Soviet Union was suspiciously missing on that list. So That is a big theme, isn't it? Spending time in Russia... Certainly in the early and mid-90s, when I first lived there, the Second World War, obviously a lot of the older generation had, had lived through it back then. It looms really large in Russian households, doesn't it? If you lose 25 million people in a war... I would war, say, say there's still this kind of family stories, they're still very impo- important and still very emotional. And not what is so important for Soviet and now Russian patriotism the victory in the Second World War, not uh, considering Russia's role is of, in it, is of course a knife in the back of, of Russians. And I think it starts the antipathy, dislike starts already among quite young school students from a Russian background here because they have these two conflicting narratives. The one day pick up from uh, their parental home and the other day learn at school and there's a certain clash in between. It's very difficult to married the one with the other, which I would say uh, explains to some extent why some young Russians go through schooling, university, everything in the West, and yet at the same time might even be Stalin admirers, which I have come across also among billionaires' children, among my interviewees. Talking about clashes, as somebody who cares deeply about Russian culture. What is your view about the future of relations between Russia and the West? You've written a a really interesting, very unusual book here that delves into the top echelons of Russian society. Do you think we can find a way through to have relations improving between, say, the UK and Russia, two countries which, outside of the period of the Cold War, have throughout history generally been allies? That's a difficult question. Anti-Westernism is also for the current regime so essential that there's little interest to... To build bridges. Tsiom, um, a polling... The polling company, Vitsiom, yeah. Uh, they uh, published data that two-thirds of the Russians believe in at least some conspiracy theory that the West is out to destroy Russia. And that's a very large part of the population. But it's certainly not uh, helping and playing right into Putin's hands are uh, general sanctions that target the population in, in general because they can they are just brilliant uh, material for, for, for the Kremlin to uh, discredit the West. And, of course, it also reconfirms uh, people's idea that the West wants to destroy them. What I think would help more is uh, sanctions directed against the rich because for their lifestyle it's so important to have the world open to them um, as that if there was a larger number of them being targeted, 
that would probably um, cause more pressure on the Kremlin. If you'd known how much work this book book was going to be and tracking down and interviewing 80 wealthy Russians must have been a huge amount of work, would you have started it in the first place? Yes, I started it for, for several kind of small projects and I almost got a little bit uh, obsessed about following up this kind of like a little bit a, a, a game to see um, to reel in these people and make them talk to and you. And also to test myself in my own eyes. When will I, when will I capitulate or how long will I <laughs> just keep trying? And also it's been great fun in, in many respects. And so there is this new group of people who got so rich so quickly, more quickly than hardly any, ever, if ever, any group in society, against the background where the society as such was impoverishing high speed in the 1990s, Okay, in the 2000s, during the oil boom, living standards recovered to a certain extent, but nevertheless, the gap between rich and poor was even widening more, something which has continued till now, and now Russia is one of the most unequal countries in the world, if looked at from uh, an aspect of wealth inequality. In the last 10 years, we could see those people changing, those people developing, uh, as I claim from Robert Burns, to to gentlemen and can observe how they do it. And I would uh, consider it almost as a sin if one has the interest and the, the resources and the chances to observe them doing it, to not do it. Of course, one can say some other projects might be, have more relevance in one other aspect, but why leave it to, the, to historians and not do it when we live through it? And they prove to be quite... a fascinating bunch of people and potentially also quite important for the future if Putin's no more. Most of those people, some probably will have to leave along the way, but most of the people will stay on beyond Putin. So then in many ways also the future of Russia. Did many of the people you spoke to talk about a post-Putin world? Are they preparing for a post-Putin world? Not at all. That would be far too provocative. What they all prepare for is, even if they're very loyal to the regime, even if they're most happy to live in Russia, they, a large percentage of them have a second existence in the West. That is, a house in the West, everything prepared that within two days they could um, move their whole families to a Western city and all prepared to the extent that they know what's cool to send their children to uh, a week later. So basically all arranged because... There remains a fear that things can go awry in no time. So things can go awry in no time. Wow, that's a strong statement. A lot of the people you spoke to do really feel that there could be some kind of retrenchment, uh, a requisitioning of private property. No, no, no. But uh, there can be showcases like, for example, Zyevodin Magomedov. I interviewed him in spring. 2016, a billionaire, and he's now been sitting in pre-court trial for a few months, and if things go bad for him, he might sit in a prison for the next 18 years. And he certainly didn't live in fear. He didn't live in fear till up to the last second, but he was picked, as people say, for enriching himself on, on budget money, on State money, yeah. State money, but then not reinvesting in Russia, but taking, bringing a lot of, of that money, of that assets, 
abroad. Um, sign, especially in times of an economic of economic uh, difficulties, that if you want to get state money, you'd better reinvest and show a certain sense of patriotism and not just uh, egotistically get that money out. Well, Elizabeth, it's a fabulous book. I'm going to pay you the highest compliment I can by saying you're a pretty good academic, but you'd make a hell of a journalist. <laughs> Thanks for talking to Thank me. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you've enjoyed this discussion, why not subscribe at lendmeyourear.co.uk or using the iTunes store. Lend me your ear. Conversations worth hearing.